it started like any other. We were at a concert, catching up with friends, having a great time. We wanted to, you know, grab a nightcap after the show. And what seemed like such an inconsequential choice became one that really defined the rest of my life. Um, as we stood in the parking lot, it was, you know, get in the line of a cab or catch a ride with friends. Um, I grabbed my boyfriend. We opted to ride with friends, hopped in the back seat. And, you know, honestly, within minutes of being on the highway, the guy driving our car lost control of it. And I was sitting in the back and my last memories were looking out of the sunroof and then bam, it all went to a blur. And we were fishtailing out of control at such a high speed. My neck snapped. And in that instant, I was paralyzed. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, exciting announcement. From now until November 27th, 2020, all of my flagship digital courses are 50% off. That's five, zero, 50% off. All you gotta do is go to artofcoaching.com forward slash courses and use the code GRATEFUL50. GRATEFUL50, it's all in the show notes. So this includes our CEU approved course, Bought In, which is critical for those of you who are strength and conditioning coaches or physical therapists or anybody else that needs recertification through the NSCA. But as we say in every episode, our work is in no way only for those in the performance field. Yes, I may use the terms coach and athlete, but that's simply because it's part of my background and you simply can't use every single description imaginable. We have people in every field from nursing and uh, finance and education and members of uh, fire departments that have taken part in our courses. Thousands of people have been a part of these things collectively. They're all entirely self-paced. So it's okay if you're busy. You don't have to finish these things like in three weeks. You can do it in 2023 if you want. What is not available in 2023 is the 50% discount. Every one of these courses feature masterclass level production quality. They come with downloadable slides, notes, and resources that aren't available anywhere else. And no, that's not a sales trick. I'm not one of those people that says, oh, these aren't available anywhere else. And then three weeks later, I come out with an ebook and there they are. These courses have cost a lot of my life, uh, not to mention money that we put into it. We really wanted to create something that helps people with communication, psychology, something that helps people understand how to navigate uncertainty in their career. If they're in uh, into that, that's valued. That's our other course. And it's a play on words. We're really clever. It's like value education. Now, again, are they going to solve all your problems? Absolutely not. You're going to have to do work for that to happen. That said, there is a reason these courses are used in a lot of different professions and with a lot of different professionals. And we all know that excuses come most easily of the things that we should be doing. So this is just a part of the suite of services we have. If you're not into online courses, make sure to reach out to us at artofcoaching.com forward slash communication 
for communication mentoring because today's episode, we're going to talk a lot about how that impacts and alters the lives of others, especially people that have gone through catastrophic injuries, catastrophic things in their lives and have a long road to recovery. So again, artofcoaching.com forward slash courses, use the code grateful 50 and you will get 50% off. If you have any questions, just email info at artofcoaching.com. All right, getting into the episode today. I want you guys to imagine something, right? I want you to imagine it's Halloween. And at the time of this recording, it was just Halloween. And we know how the air typically feels during that time of year. Now, I understand that there's different people in different parts of the world, right? So it's all relative to where you're at. And if Halloween doesn't resonate, whatever. Let's imagine it's evening and you're out with some friends. Maybe you've gone to a concert and you get into a car and it's no different than any other evening. You get in a car, you're maybe going somewhere else to eat, you're maybe going to an after party, maybe you're going to a friend's house, maybe you're going home. And all of a sudden the driver loses control. And after that, it's blank. This is exactly what happened to our guest today, Kendall Basin. The aftermath of this scene that she lived out was one of twisted metal, blurred memories, and a life forever altered. Kendall was paralyzed. Now, a lot of what we talked about today is about how rather than letting this experience take Kendall and make her sink into darkness and accept all these limitations echoed by many, and mind you, the doctors told her after this she would be lucky if she would ever feed herself again. Now, she's in a wheelchair, right? And she hasn't been able to walk again. She's been paralyzed for 11 years to date. But because she thought outside the box, because she trusted her recovery with unconventional methods, and because she didn't listen to these people who failed to communicate with her in a personal way, who failed to understand that any kind of recovery, any kind of success story, you have to look at the human, not the condition. She overcame all these things. Two and a half years into Kendall's journey with paralysis, she opened React which is a neurological performance training facility. And if that term intimidates you, don't worry. We talk about this in the episode and we break down what neuro and neurological and all these terms mean. And her goal since then has been to give other people's hope, people hope through her story at a place in time where they felt they might need it the most. Now, what's really impressive about Kendall is she's a mother throughout all this, right? And she doesn't look at this as a situation where she's a victim. She doesn't want empathy. And we talk about the difference between empathy and compassion. So I really hope you join me. I hope you listen to this entire episode. I hope you take it to heart. And I hope it empowers you because we all know somebody who is dealing with some kind of physical malady, right? They may not be in a wheelchair, but maybe some other life freedom has been taken away from them. And these kinds of things and these kinds of discussions are critical. So please listen deeply, give Kendall your time, and let's learn more about how to understand the human not the condition. Without further ado, Kendall Basic. Kendall Basic, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's our pleasure. Listen, you have a fascinating story and I always try to make sure when guests come on that, you know, we always tee it up for our audience. We want people to feel like this is a dinner guest. They already know a little bit about them. And I've done that in the intro, but nothing, I mean, nothing can replace hearing it from your own mouth, the person that experienced it. I'd love for you, if you're comfortable with it, 
to talk a little bit about that so our audience can really get it in their mind's eye, the things that you have overcome, what brought you here today, so we can dive deeper into this. So if you're comfortable with it, take it away. Sure. Um, the timing's actually interesting because my accident that set me on this path happened on Halloween. So, um, you know, every year around this time, I spend a lot of time sort of reflecting and thinking back on that moment and, you know, sort of wishing I could have a moment in my own body. And then I really like snap back to my purpose and it really puts me back on track. And, um, you know, just thinking back to that night on Halloween in 2009, it started like any other. We were at a concert, catching up with friends, having a great time. We wanted to, you know, grab a nightcap after the show. And what seemed like such an inconsequential choice became one that really defined the rest of my life. Um, as we stood in the parking lot, it was, you know, get in the line of a cab or catch a ride with friends. Um, I grabbed my boyfriend, we opted to ride with friends, hopped in the back seat. And, you know, honestly, within minutes of being on the highway, the guy driving our car lost control of it. And I was sitting in the back and my last memories were looking out of the sunroof. And then bam, it all went to a blur. And we were fishtailing out of control at such a high speed. My neck snapped. And in that instant, I was paralyzed and everything for me changed. Um, luckily, I, I don't have any memories, so I don't have, you know, the, the anxiety of that moment, but um, everything I knew in that exact moment had been taken. I was robbed, I was depleted, I was just lying there motionless, I couldn't do anything. And it forced me to reinvent myself, and through that, I have learned so much, and it has set me on a path to so much purpose, that that's why I'm here to share my story today. And that's what my husband and I are, you know, have a vision and we're excited to tackle this, this, this space of neurological injury and disease. So, I mean, with that, Kendall, you know, you're a mother, you're a business owner, you're so many things. And I have to imagine that at least at the beginning, and maybe it is now, right? I'm coming at this from a naive perspective and I want, you know, to bring our audience into this. I'm sure it's frustrating when you're all these other things that people see you in your wheelchair and they immediately have these mixed emotions. We've had somebody on, on the show before uh, that had cerebral palsy and, you know, they just said uh, it, it always threw them through a loop when somebody was like, I don't know what to call you. And he goes, well, you can just call me Matt, you know, yeah. like, and so how long did it take for you to adjust that? I mean, obviously you're dealing with it in your own life and you're saying, holy crap, you know, now I'm in this situation, I've got to adjust to this new reality, but also making sure that when you went into a room, you were able to own that and you made it clear, like, yo, I don't need attention. I don't need pity. I don't need anything of this. I, this is not the thing that defines me, right? Was there, I have to imagine that happened in stages for you. And that was something that, that frustrated you to some degree, or am I wrong? I mean, can you talk to me about no, how you you're spot that? on? I, I mean, I think that when anyone you know, sees themselves one way and then you have a life altering traumatic event and you're who you are is no longer that person. It, it, it takes you a while to find your new you, if you will. And when I used to look in the mirror and see myself in the wheelchair and see myself slumped over, just, you know, the, the way that my hands worked and um, it was really demoralizing. And I think until I found a community of other people that were living this injury alongside me, 
it, it, it didn't really connect for me. I think a lot of it had to do with not only the emotional healing, but the physical healing. And as I began to have those two components together through this program that I went to out in California, I was just, you know, I had no path forward. I had, I, I had no identity. I would look in the mirror and not even see myself because I didn't feel myself. But then once I began to regain strength amongst others, um, I think all of us as people, we just want to belong. And when you have these injuries, everything you knew is taken and everyone's so fearful, they kind of shy back and you, you don't know where you belong. And I think once I found this community of individuals that was battling their, their neurological injury disease alongside me, we all finally had a sense of belonging again. And then through that belonging, we found strength in one another. And then through those emotional strengths, we found the physical strength. And it just, it really set me back on track. And I think the biggest thing for me in learning all of this is the difference in being empathetic towards people in this situation versus being compassionate. Empathy lacks the tool to do anything. You just look at, you just, you know, it's the people in the store that just look and smile at me while I'm grocery shopping. Or, you know, the, the, you know, the, the guy that runs over awkwardly to, you know, help me in my car. They're very empathetic and that's really sweet, but they're not being compassionate in the sense that they're not allowing me to empower myself. I think something my family did really early on was that compassionate leadership in the sense they told me, we're here for you. We wish he could take this for you, from you, but you have to begin to, to heal from this because you've got to move forward. And so I think that, that once I found a path forward and I was surrounded by others that were battling this too, that's where I began to find myself. And that's where I began to find a purpose. And that's where I began to not worry about the looks and the smiles and the, you know, the things where people want to cater to you because you're in a wheelchair. Yeah. And you use some, I mean, there's some golden content within that. The terms belonging and compassion are huge. One belonging, I, I certainly can appreciate. I mean, there were many, many periods in my life where, you know, I felt lost or confused. And I think, you know, one area that I finally came into my own is when I, when I went to college, um, you know, in high school, I never really, my brother and I had very different experiences in high school. He loved high school. Like that was his thing, what have you. High school was a time where I went through my hospitalization I was kind of an anxious kid. I knew I kind of wanted to do more in the world, which is a weird thing to think about in high school. But, you know, then when I got into college, I found all these other people who were interested in different things where a lot of my high school friends, it was either kind of drinking drugs or sports. And yeah. that like that just, you know, that's phases some high school kids go through that. I didn't have that. I had the sports part of it, but not the other pieces. And in college, I started to feel like I belonged right in different other areas of my life. Um, when I worked with military you know, hearing their stories about why they joined the military. And even now, you know, cause that's a population we work with. And that's when I first started working with adapted athletes. You know, we had members of the military that were in wheelchairs. We had members that had both legs, you know, not just both legs gone, but an arm gone and a leg gone. And, you know, when I started training these guys, I mean, I'd have groups of, you know, combine or NFL or major league baseball players. And then I'd have to go work with adaptive athletes. And you just could, you knew right away. I mean, at first, you're not sure how to approach it. You know, I was a young coach. It was my first time. I knew this. I'm not going to draw attention to it. My stepfather has polio. And when I met him for the first time, I remember asking my mom and I was super young. I'm like, yo, do I, do I shake his hand? Cause it's in his right hand. Do I not? Is he, is he uncomfortable with it? And she's like, it's nothing different. So I just got used to that, right? You see these things and you get used to it and you realize like, Hey, see beyond that. And, um, 
I think it's important because we can hear about it. And during a time where we talk about so many types of inequalities and injustices and commute, what essentially boil down communication-based issues, you're right, Kendall. Like, you need to understand the difference between empathy and compassion. I never felt bad for these people, and they never wanted me to. It, it is an empowerment. You know, like, w- when working with these athletes, it wasn't like, hey, do this for me. It was like, no, I need to learn to do it myself because that's the reality in which I live. Yet, it's, and I want to ask you this. It's funny because sometimes you almost get punished if you're a leader for not being empathetic, right, by the greater audience. So they'll be like, oh, well, you should be more patient. You should do this. Yet the people we work with and the people we lead often, if it's the right fit, are like, no, I want to be pushed. I want to be challenged. Like, I don't need your pity. You know, where do you, where do you stand on that, like, in terms of what society thinks and tells us to do and how to lead versus you being somebody who's self-driven, right, uh, uh, if, like, really um, high level of self-efficacy, all these things. Where do you feel like that line is? You know, yeah, I mean, everything you just said is like, absolutely the, I, I think something that's very unique about the training program and the training facility that we have created is that difference and that delicate balance between the empathy and the compassion. Um, Individuals that have been through this injury, they lose a lot and they rely a lot on other people to help them, you know, get to where they have to be. There's a lot of things um, that you don't see outwardly that affect, um, people on a day-to-day basis. So when they have appointments with us at React, um, you know, we we hold them accountable to that. And, you know, sometimes a compassionate thing is to not back down and to make sure like you do show up for your appointment. And if we need to adjust once you're here based on, you know, situations, we absolutely can pivot, but you can't just make excuses and not be held accountable just because of everything that you've been through. And that has backfired sometimes. There are people that say Kendall just is too mean. She sticks to her guns too much. She she doesn't understand. And it's, um, you know, that's the part where I laugh a little. Like, I don't understand. What are you talking about? I've been through this myself. Um, but I held myself to certain standards, and I'm certainly going to hold those to you as well. And I think if you stick with me, you will actually thank me in the end when you have you know, overcome those hardships and you're now back on track with things. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that has come to haunt me sometimes being more of that compassionate leader versus the empathetic and, and wanting to sit there and wallow in their pains. And while there is very much a moment for all of that, I still myself have moments where I play the why me, or I'm just so frustrated that I can't, you know, run alongside my daughter at the beach Um, you know, there is a space for empathy, but it's not somewhere you want to stay. And I think that's a really unique thing that we do at react is, 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 is that compassion. And we put that power back into our clients instead of letting them just get away with all the excuses. And that's one thing I want to dive a little bit more deeply into, because when we hear about one, I want our audience to know more about react. And and I'm always curious, despite the fact that conversations I've had with you, and your husband, Ryan, you know, th- there's a, there's a simple truth and it's uncomfortable. There's a stigma around anytime we hear the word neuro, you know, uh, when I first came into the performance field, there were people that used the term neuro to make almost anything seem more complicated, sexy, right? It was like the buzzword of the time. Like, and we see it in a lot of different fields. It's certainly not just performance. We hear about uh, neurolinguistic programming. We hear about all these other kinds of things. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's been people who, as there is in every field, 
use that term. They bastardize it. They make a lot of claims. Hey, we'll get we'll get you to walk again. We'll get you to do this. And they kind of broadly state these things, right, to people that have been in similar situations, to people whose lives are massively impacted. I mean, on a, a separate yet somewhat related note, I mean, I even look at my father, and my father's got tremendous kind of uh, spinal issues, and he's always like, hey, what do you think about these places that claim this and claim that? I'm like, dad, uh, the same thing you would claim, you would think about people that claim somebody can just get in the stock market because he was a financial advisor for 40 years, and they're just going to get rich from day trading, and that that's common. I go, but it sounds like bullshit. It usually is. You know, talk to me about that. Talk to me about how you guys went into a space that you believe in, that you've done the research for, you've lived, yet you know is filled with charlatans, and how you navigate that. Because if you just attack them, you take away from you your look message. like the crazy one. Right, and, and we see that already in so many professions. People lose track of what they're doing because they're so busy fighting everybody else. How have you guys approached that whole thing? And in answering this, please give us a little bit more background about what you guys do at your facility. Sure. Um, so starting on the neurospace in general, I think as neuroscience has progressed and we've begun to understand that the brain is not as plastic as we once thought, it's not so black and white, there's actually quite a bit of gray. Um, there are naturally a lot of locations, facilities, professionals that are excited around the neuroscience and the neuroplasticity. And so it is a very trendy space. Um, and then you also couple that with a lot of people that get into this, get into it because someone they love was impacted by this. Um, that does not mean that you're going to be good at it. And that does not mean that, you know, the business side of things, it just means that you have the passion. Um, so there is a lot of muddied, um, you know, techniques, facilities, there's just, there's a lot of bad stuff out there, even though it's all coming from a good place. Um, there's a lot of seeing something on the internet or social media and replicating that without understanding why. And when you are training the nervous system, the great things about it, that it is, um, you know, plastic that you can repair it, but that can become maladaptive too. You can, you can do more harm than good. So it's really hard to sit here as someone that lives this injury and then also has a facility that is is offering services to this population to make change and to see all the the bad ones out there, but you gotta you just gotta stay focused. Um, so React is a um, a nonprofit, and we offer um, we have strength and conditioning coaches and therapists, and it is a collective um, where everyone that comes together on our team is is driven by our shared mission and our shared vision to really change this narrative and change the recovery potential around these neurological diagnoses. Um, but then we have a unique mindset of, of actually listening to our clients, trying to get to understand their strengths and weaknesses, what they want to accomplish and blending all of, of their personal needs and wants and desires with our knowledge and our tools and our ability to shape a recovery program that actually is customized to them and not just following some flow chart or following this compensatory narrative that is just so frustrating in the traditional community of like, accept it, ad adapt and move forward. We just like go at it and say, 
you know, screw all that. Here's some principles that we know about the body. Here's what we know from our creative expertise and strength and conditioning. Here's what we know about your individual goals, needs, and where you're at. Let's go. And that shift of empowerment and hope accompanied with tools and knowledge make React really, really unique. Um, you know, as far as, as other competitors in our space that um, are muddying it, I think the most important thing that we can do here at React and what Ryan and I can do with our vision is to stay focused and try to scale and reach the families and the coaches out there in the world and teach them our goods and then allow them to go home to their communities and their professions and, and bring what we've taught them so we can hopefully grow the stronger side of this and maybe slowly the other ones will, will weed away. Yeah, it's not, it's not definitely not in your control, right? You just have to focus on your thing. Here's, here's something I know some of our audience has to be wondering and even I'm fascinated by. So let's say you go in there, right? You've had a catastrophic accident and, and heaven forbid, right? But let's say you did. And, and obviously this is part of your story. So you did. And you're, you're working on this stuff. Like what does that even look like, right? Because you can paint this with a broad canvas. Like for example, if somebody goes to work out, they have a general idea. Okay, I'm supposed to foam roll. I'm supposed to warm up. I'm supposed to do this. If somebody's going on a date, they know they should shower. They know they should dress up. They know they, they should brush their teeth. There's so many things that we know the process of that thing. But when it's like, hey, you're in this wheelchair and we're going to work on everything from a neural standpoint to try to enhance the functionality you do have and maybe even, you know, get you out of this or less dependent on this, where the hell do you start? And I understand just so it doesn't feel like there's pressure on you, that's <laughs> different to everybody. So feel free I want sure. to hear where you started. Sure. Um, when I first rolled into the, the program that we've replicated, um, I just looked around and was in complete shock that this place was an actual gym. And, and it, it wasn't like, you know, just tables and, you know, a couple weights and, and you know, weight stacks. And it was like spin bikes and, um, you know, like vibration platforms and like just, just, there was a girl on an upright spin bike and I'm like, she cannot possibly be paralyzed um, because we can't do that. And she sure enough had a C5 spinal cord injury from skiing down a mountain was absolutely paralyzed and was pedaling that thing on her own. And I was just like, wow. Yeah, but how? I know it's incredible. And honestly, when I first had my injury due to how high up it is, I'm technically considered a C6 um, spinal cord injury. They told my family that the most I should hope for was to be able to feed myself independently and that I would require around the clock caregivers. And it might at some point make sense for our family to look at assisted living. And then I go into a space like this and people are crawling and walking and riding bikes. And I'm like, wow. So where do you start on all that? Basically there's some fundamentals of, you know, the way that you train a nervous system and they really just revolve around lots of repetition and movement. And so all of our program starts around that. Now we have a lot more expertise when it comes into it. I'm just really simplifying it. But we basically listen to their goals. Then we do a couple little tests to sort of see what traces and what feedback we're getting from the nervous system. And then we just pound it and pound it and pound it with all of the tools and knowledge we've experienced over these last 10 years. Um, and then just we combine it with keeping it interesting because people have to come. Repetition is the key to, to making progress here. So 
people come for years and years if they can. And so you got to keep it, you got to keep it interesting because if the mind is not engaged in this recovery, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, so I don't I'd, know if I necessarily I'd have to imagine, answer that. No, you're, I mean, like, we're going to continue to dive into it, right? A lot of it is is stimulus response, right? Like, we know that even, for example, my son, right? 11 months at the time of this recording, and, you know, he's standing, he's not walking. But we know that there's a step reflex, and we know that even when he wasn't standing, we could move his legs independently, right? Now, even though at that point in time, he didn't have conscious awareness of how to move his legs in a coordinated fashion, we know that there's a neural response to when we move his legs in a coordinated fashion for him. Yes. We know that there's degrees of freedom that the body and this wonderful computer up in our, that, that, that we're born with is assessing, hey, what's going on? Everything from if I uh, tickle the bottom of his foot, the Babinski reflex, to touching his head, there's, there's things firing. So, you know, what I, what I want to orient from our audience, because I don't want either you or I to get lost in jargon speak because we'll, we'll nerd out. But what I want people to appreciate and what I want you to kind of verify or just, you know, say, no, that's not the case at all. So the woman that was on the spin bike, let's say, let's say I'm on the bike and I can't use my legs, right? I'm legitimately paralyzed, can't use my legs. Are, you know, just by moving it, whether it's, we know we can't do it independently, but if you guys facilitate the stroke of those pedals and my legs are now going through that range of motion. Yes. And that is exactly how it starts. That, right. that range, that motion, that, that repetitive that is the task specific over and over and over stuff that your body and your brain need to learn to rewire, so to speak. So in the beginning of the of anyone on these spin bikes, you get them up there and you secure them in place. And then the coaches take one foot each because it's so important to keep joints in proper alignment while you're doing this. Because again, if you don't, then you're just doing bad with the good. Um, but they pedal it for you. And then the weight of the wheel also continues to move it. And then the body mechanics of shifting your hip from side to side. So it's a lot of, um, like cheating, if you will, in order to get that movement. And then the movement is continued by the, by the trainers. But the hope is, and, and for some people over time that passive and becomes a little bit more of, you know, there's a little bit of a signal firing through there now. And so now I can do part of the movement. I can push a little, I can't necessarily pull it back up, but I can push. So the weight of the wheel pulls it. And then, you know, just over time, that progression happens just like the developmental movement that you were just talking about with Bronson, you know, it's like, you know, he doesn't know that his legs are going like that, but eventually it all gets put together and then he puts that together. And then we follow those same patterns in our facility to help reform your ability to do these things that you, you know, used to take for granted. Yeah, I mean, we even see it with, and I know I've mentioned it a couple times on this podcast, and, and you know about her, my neighbor who had a, a, a brain tumor that literally burst. And, you know, she had a midline shift in her brain. I, I basically started on the side, even though this is the time of year at the time I'm recording this, I don't typically take on athletes or anything like that. I'm focused more on art of coaching and our consulting and our communication and psychology part of the business. Um, you know, I, I helped her with her rehab. And she... I mean, she had to learn how to walk again. She had to learn she couldn't squat, stand up, anything again. This is a woman who, you know, had full capacity of her body prior to this, right? She's in her 40s. She came, and, and my wife used to kind of train her in the garage. They're just good friends of ours that are neighbors that are trying to embrace an active lifestyle. And now here I am, you know, I started doing Water Wednesdays with her because we had to go back to some of the most remedial stuff 
remove her body weight essentially or percentages yeah. of it because she couldn't go through it. And even when she couldn't like perform a certain task, I'd have to get her into these ranges of motion. I'd have to kind of do these things. And we start seeing that neural firing. And I think, you know, again, we don't want to muddy it for people that aren't used to the term neuro. All we, all we're talking about here is sending a signal, removing signal yeah. from noise and, and putting people in positions of self-discovery and exploration, right? Yeah. It's just getting that energy back into a life that's almost been dead because it's just sedentary. Um, you know, exercise is medicine. Movement is medicine. And our bodies are meant to move. And when these things happen and we aren't given those freedoms, we need other people to help us move our bodies. And it's through that that you can build and start to then actually create movement where you didn't have it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a construct that should make sense to anybody. If we know one thing that's not going to help anybody dealing with any level of paralysis is not sending any kind of signal. Just like if you have a business right now that's been hit by COVID, not trying anything, not experimenting with anything is obviously going to create entropy. A failed relationship, not communicating, not saying the things you wish you would have said is not going to create stimulus. So it's it's just, hey, we, we have no guarantee that these things are going to work, but we know that if we can flood the system in a strategic way with a variety of stimuli, whether it's lights, whether that's a range of motion, whether that's forms of vibration, whether that's forms of this, we can maybe start to reinvigorate aspects of this otherwise dormant system. Are you going to be able yeah. to fix? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, it's that narrative right there that I think frustrates me more than anything. And is one of the biggest things that Ryan and I want to do with um, breaking off and creating basic methods, which is our last our family name and giving a personal voice to this journey is one of the biggest things we want to change is that narrative, that narrative of like, when you have this injury, you are literally the first thing out of their mouth is to hope for very little hope is just immediately taken. And then after they take your hope, they tell you, you need to accept it and move forward. I don't think anyone's ready to accept anything right after that. Like when your mom passes, you're not going to accept that right away. When you get a cancer diagnosis, you're not going to accept that right away. Why in the world are we telling people after a brain injury or a spinal injury or multiple sclerosis diagnosis, they need to accept it right away. Like, so they take away your hope. They tell you to accept it. And then they tell you that most of these people around you that you love are going to be gone in a few years because your future is really hard. Oh, okay. So now I'm supposed to go off and fight for my life again. Like, no, people are just defeated and deflated. And if we can change that narrative and say, listen, there is a path forward. How much you will regain physically is really unknown. We have a lot of great tools. We have a lot of knowledge and we have a lot of opportunity and we're going to give you everything we have, but we're certainly going to empower you to believe in yourself and find a path forward. And that is what Ryan and I want so badly to change because I don't feel like there's many other spaces where you have such a bleak and, and, and ugh, narrative. It's like, I always say to people, like, what if, what if people were going into, you know, disadvantaged communities as far as like economically disadvantaged and going to their school systems in high school and saying, you know what, guys, the likelihood of many of you going to college is bleak. And those of you that do get in probably won't finish. So just, you know what, don't even apply. I mean, no way would we say that. So I think for Ryan and I, that is the biggest thing in, in addition to the training itself is getting this narrative to change of like, yeah, this is awful. I mean, this is one of the worst things you can go through. 
However, there's a community of people behind you. There is hope and there are options. And we just have to sort of time will tell what that looks like. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of this ties into, I'm glad you use the word narrative, Kendall, because it ties into communication. A lot of this is just the way doctors, surgeons, and people in medical fields tend to communicate. And it's something they know, you know, this is uh, a cornerstone of my research. One of the articles I, I dove into a while back is specifically talking about oncology, people that work with various forms of cancer, as you know, um, how they go about bringing science to the art of delivering bad news. And, and it talks about it. And I'm going to quote here from uh, a recent article. They basically say, you know, it says the body of research revolving the skills needed to communicate effectively with patients over the past 30 years has primarily focused on the provider, which means that a lot of time, first of all, there used to be no training for anybody in medical personnel. They just focused on what they did, right? If it was a surgeon, you focus on the body and cutting and the injury and what have you. Then people started realizing, and again, this isn't subjective. This is actually peer-reviewed research that shows if there's poor communication, anything like that, that patients not only feel like they got lower quality of care, they feel like uh, they're just overall less informed. You use the key term, less hopeful. And they've actually showed, and you, people can consider it placebo or not, but we know in many cases placebo is real. Poor communication with a doctor has actually increased the recovery times of treatments that are equal in scope and scale and the nature of the issue. You know, And so it, it just talks about these things, and there is so much evidence saying that medical practitioners need better communication because they, they will say these things. They'll say, hey, uh, yeah, you're never, I, I got told when I had back surgery, you should never lift again. Um, I got told, I mean, just the other day, I'm getting uh, in two weeks, at least from this recording, um, I'm getting shoulder surgery to fix an injury that was a contact-related injury from five years ago. Um, I was doing a Turkish get-up and two soccer players that were on this field that I was training on uh, we're messing around and right as I was standing up, one pushed the other one into me. And so my shoulder subluxed and it ended up being a massive labral tear and what have you. And I've kind of dealt with it for five years. But the bottom line is, you know, the doctor just the other day, and I'm, I'm keep in mind, this is my business now focusing on yeah. communication. So I'm sitting here with bated breath waiting to hear what he says, because I know it's coming. And I'm like, you know, and I ask him the question, you know, I, I say, hey, you know, what's, what's your take on timeline knowing that it's just, and he's like, listen, your days of lifting heavy weights may be over. And I'm like, Bro. <laughs> no, you're talking to somebody that's been a strength coach for 15 years. And I've helped people that have been blown apart by RPGs, understand how to put weight overhead. I've lived through the whole baseball thing of, oh, major league baseball players should never lift heavy weights. Yet we see that as they get stronger, right? They have more stability in this socket. But the point is, Kendall, you're spot on. I'm like, when, when we think about what is the very first thing people experience after traumatic events, it's usually communication with a healthcare provider, and they plant that seed. They plant that seed of either, hey, here, here's what you can hope for, and, and what, like what you said, and, and if I'm quoting correctly, they said, hey, you're going to be lucky, lucky, best case scenario, if you can feed yourself, and you're probably going to need care. That sets the stage for horrendous things to come yeah. and lack of self-belief if you're not somebody who's supremely self-confident. Sure. And our whole lives, we're sort of taught to like really trust these doctors. I mean, you go to a doctor and they're supposed to be the experts in your health. That's the white then, coat. Trust me. Yeah. And then you like are hearing all of this and you're just like, 
I don't know. My inner voice is just really telling me that this cannot be. This just simply cannot be. And what is so unique is that strength coaches understand the body very well. They love to be creative. And so when you can find the right coaches that have that skill set, and then you've removed them from this medical predisposition, and you just teach them these principles of plasticity, and you teach them the way the nervous system can respond, they, they don't have that narrative and that mindset. And they're willing to kind of go above and beyond. And what is sad is I have found that when I personally told my doctors and therapists about going to this program, they were like, oh, you know, tread very carefully. Those are not licensed clinicians. They shouldn't really be doing this. Um, You could really get hurt. And truth be told, I never got hurt. People are very cautious. We require things like bone density. We have check policies like we're very aware of our population and we're very very cautious but we push that envelope we push that narrative and we we're not going to stop at oh you'll probably never we're we're just going to see what happens yeah and i think you know it's it's interesting that doctors say those things because you know really for a very long time and it it isn't until re- relative recent history doctors have tried some crazy things you know in the 18 i mean there, there's vast literature talking about the radical treatments, not just from like the 1400s and the 1500s, but the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but if not, it's worth mentioning it again. In, you know, I'm doing some research for the next book I'm writing, and we came across something that talked about in 1685, King Charles II, you know, is sick. And basically he received what at the time was considered cutting edge medical care from the top 14 men in the field that are these trustworthy medical men, right? This is what they did. You ready for this? They shaved his head and applied blistering agent to his scalp, fed him gallstones from a goat, had him drink 40 drops of extract from a dead man's skull, gave him a strong laxative, forced him to violent uh, vomit violently, applied an enema containing what's known as the interalia of the animal, uh, made him drink sacred bitters, rock salt, beetroot, fennel seeds, so on and so forth. And again, I know I've talked about this, but some things bear worth repeating. And here's the scariest thing. What we saw with kind of quack practices then is what we're seeing with some people not understanding the power of communication during these treatment processes now. I mean, think about it. And we're, I want to get your take on it. You have to deal with difficult personalities, people that are dealing with self-doubt and all this. But how, how, how scary is this? So in the medical community has now said, yeah, we know that we need to take communication training because we're dealing with complex subjects. Yet they were talking about a study in Japan that out of 153 doctors who were available in these two institutions that were told they have communication training programs that could decrease litigation, enhance patient recovery, decrease patient's anxieties, understanding all these kinds of things, only 30 agreed to participate. 30 out of 100. And and that's what I, I'd like to get your take on. And I'm not looking for any kind of answer here. I'm just looking for whatever you think. Why do you think it is you having been someone that was communicated with horribly, horribly, why do you think it is we're so bad at that? And not only that, we're so woefully unaware of how bad we are at communicating with people that are dealing with these things or just in general. Uh, you know, I think it's twofold. I think... First and foremost, um, the medical community takes for granted their patients. 
because there will always be people sick and people in need of a doctor and they don't they don't value their customers so to speak because it's our own like when our life is in peril and, and we we don't we have to go to a doctor so i remember a couple of doctors touring react and during the tour we had an actual client pop in a potential client in a wheelchair pop in and him and his family asked for a tour. So Ryan and I split up. He hung with the doctors while I uh, went off with the new family. And at the end of it, there was like a doctor that had a tear in her eye. And she was like, that was the most compassionate thing I've ever seen. You just spent almost 45 minutes giving this family a tour and explaining your program. There is no way in the world as doctors that we would ever be given that grace to sit with a family like that. And she was like, we literally just take our patients for granted. So I think almost the like when posed to a doctor of like, would you like to better yourself through communication? They're like, why do I even need to? Like patients are always going to come to me whether I'm a good communicator or not. So I think that's one element of it. And then secondly, I've had several therapists tell me they don't actually even care about their bedside manner. I had one that worked for me and she point blank said, I could care less about my bedside manner. All I care about is being the best therapist I could be. And I'm like, that's interesting that you look at it that way, that you think your gift and tools are only in the therapies and the modalities and not how you resonate within the heart of someone. And so I think maybe it's just a combination of taking for granted that people will always need them and then feeling like, their most important asset is the life-saving component or the, 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 you know, the, 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 the tools of their hands versus the tools of their, their heart and their mouth. So here's what I wonder with that. How has it changed? How has the way you were communicated with uh, changed the way that you are aware of these things? And how do you translate that into when you deal with people that maybe, you know, they, they come in, they're clients of yours and they're, maybe their expectations are off. Maybe their emotions are high still, you know, obviously when dealing with people, you're going to, in, in any field, we're going to have that, right? People with misplaced expectations, people who are angry, even our star clients or uh, customers or what have you after a while can, can get irritated and angry. How do you resolve those forms of conflict? What has it made you more aware of as a practitioner and just how you address these kinds of things? Um, You know, I think that I always just tread on, you know, People, people lack an understanding of how to deal with this because there's no textbook. So, you know, when you go through this and it's like, how are you, you know, what, what did that feel like? Or how is this? When did you get this? And it's like, there's just no, there's no textbook. There's no help in explaining any of it. So I think just that human element of me having lived this injury and sitting in front of someone and being very open and honest and just sharing my experience in and of itself, that moment, you can see people sort of let their guard down. And then they want to know, you know, am I going to make the recovery you made? Or am I going to walk again? And honestly, my response is like, I haven't given up on walking. I know someone that it took seven years for them to learn to rewalk. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to walk again, but that doesn't mean that I've stopped because it's so important to not lose sight of you won't ever be able to walk again, even if science has this breakthrough cure for us. If in the meantime, you've been taking care of your body and your bones are no longer strong enough to hold you up, your muscles don't even lengthen, your, your hip flexors have shortened into the seated position along with your hamstrings. So 
for me, it's like, you know, I want, I want that for you. I want that for myself. Um, you know, I, I don't have a, a magical pill or, you know, I can't look into the future and tell you, but I can certainly say, let's not give up on that goal. And in the meantime, let's be healthy and ha happy. Let's thrive. Let's, you know, let's do all the things people are saying we can't do. Let's do this together. Um, and just kind of that bond. Yeah, I mean, listen, all you can do is hope to relate. I always talk about research, relate, reframe. If you can seek to understand where they're coming from, if you can be straightforward and frank, and if you can speak in a language they understand, right, it, it gets you closer than, than you can. And everybody is going to have, I mean, you're talking about something deeply personal. I know for me, I would be a miserable person if my mobility was taken away in many respects because I have so much energy that an output, a way of me getting that out so I can clarify my thoughts so that I can, you know, do, be, just be how I am. It's a part of my being is. And I've had to deal with that on various micro levels compared to you. Um, but, you know, a lot of it comes down to timing too. I try to urge people when they say, oh, how can I get this person to buy in? This doesn't work. That doesn't work. I go timeout. First of all, you know, what influence tactics do you even tend to use? And I use that term because that's what we talk about in a lot of our courses. Like I ask them to take inventory. I go, are you always trying to rationalize with them? Are you always trying to do, you know, are you always trying to, um, uh, some other examples, to use exchange tactics with them where it's a lot of give and take? Is it something where you're using legitimating tactics where you're just kind of being more forceful and saying, hey, this is how it is. These are the rules. There's, I mean, there's 10 to 15 different influence tactics we all use on a daily basis that we're woefully unaware from, of. Yet it amazes me when people always think the other person's the issue. Right, like you can think about the timing, your message, how that message is delivered, all these kinds of things muddy that up. Um, you know, I want to switch gears for a moment because this stuff has been pretty heavy. You're a mom, and you have a beautiful little girl, right? How old's Bren? She's four. She's four. You have a dog named Cowboy, and, yeah. and how long have you and Ryan been married? Five years. Five years. Congratulations on that. Talk Thank to you. me about the challenges of being a mother in the situation that you're in and what, you know, how, like the questions Bryn asks you and how, what that's made you kind of, how that's made you look at things differently. Maybe that's how that's helped you grow. If you wouldn't mind, if that's too personal, feel free to let me no, know. Honestly, after these, I'm such an open book, but, um, you know, I don't, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into that. Honestly, by the time I got pregnant with Bryn, I was really comfortable and confident in who I was. And I think a lot of that came from Ryan. Um, my husband is someone that truly sees past a wheelchair and truly, truly sees past all these injuries to see the person for who they are. And that's really powerful. And he tells me every day how important and how beautiful I am and how much. And so for those things, I... I was pretty confident when I got pregnant and I actually guided my doctors through the whole process because they were terrified to take me. Um, they had never had a spinal cord injured, um, you know, patient before. Um, they did not believe that I would be able to have her on my own. They Cause just were, to clarify, sorry to interrupt, just to clarify for our audience, you had Bryn after this accident had occurred after you had lost mobility. Correct. correct? Okay. Correct. I have been now paralyzed for 11 years and Bryn is four. So, um, yes, I was very much, you know, you know, not comfortable, but just confident, so to speak in, in who I was and my, you know, physical and emotional stability. 
So, um, you know, having, having a daughter, you know, obviously every new mom's really nervous. I think that my pregnancy was just like any pregnancy. My delivery was just like any delivery other than the fact that everyone in the room thought I was going to need to be rushed off to the OR for a C-section since I'm paralyzed. And I was able to push out through, you know, the, the, about the, the, the movement I've regained and, um, everyone was crying and like, wow, you're a true miracle. And I, I, I kind of hate that word miracle. Cause it's like, no, this is years and years and years of hard work. It is not a miracle that she just came out this way, but um, you know, just learning how to have that conversation with Bryn has been really something careful. Uh, it's really cute. She always, you know, sees me fix my legs or stop them from bouncing and she'll do it when she does it for me. And when I'm on the couch, she'll ride around in my wheelchair and she just, to her, it's completely normal. She doesn't really know anything else. She does know that like, I wish that I could walk. And she always says, mommy, I hope one day you get walking legs. And she used to think that if she put her shoes on me, that my legs would then work. Um, and she loves to like, look at my scar. And there was a little stuffed animal that my dad gave me in the ICU. And my mom told her that story. And she just loves that little stuffed animal because she knows it's the one that I had when I had my accident. Um, so there's obviously a lot of components of motherhood that she is exposed to that are not the usual that she, I think it's giving her um, a lot of insight that will, that will serve her well into the future of being more of that, a compassionate leader versus the empathetic. And, and uh, I just feel like that empathy almost takes away your power even more when people look at you that way. And, you know, I just know she'll never really be that way, but um, you know, it's interesting is I've actually gained a lot more upper body and hand strength by being a mother. Um, when I went in like a year ago for just like a regular update with my spinal cord injury doctor, they always do these tests to, you know, kind of, you know, categorize where you are on their charts and forever. I've always been a C6, C7. Um, and after motherhood, I am now technically considered a T2, um, because I just gained so much strength in my arms and hands from, you know, just adapting and picking her up and doing what you got to do to get it done. And that's the key, right? We adapt and we always find a way to come through these things. Listen, I, I'm continually always impressed with your story. There's so many levels of it, not just as, you know, I think the biggest thing that always resonated with me is when you guys talked about one of your catchphrases, you know, it's the human, not the condition. And I know that that was something that inspired me in my own journey, because there was one point in time where people talked through me just because they saw the symptom of what I was going through as a teenager. It's what got me interested in communication and social dynamics because when when you see somebody as a human, not the condition, when you see something as a situation problem and a true you know person issue and you look at the complexities of all these things and you unwrap it, it allows everything else to come together, right? And we start forgetting, a lot of times people think that the micro makes the macro tick and yeah, for sure it does. And I've used that phrase, but it also works in reverse. There's nothing more complex than the human being. And when you can unlock those things, when you figure out what's driving somebody, how they perceive something, how they approach something, not just in their professional life, but in their day-to-day -day life as a mother, as a father, as a son, as anything, it, it gives you a lot of cues of how to approach these things so that the other things you do do philosophically, technically, what have you, have greater impact. 
So, you know, I just want to thank you for you know, being willing to talk about these things and, and sharing them. Absolutely. I'm on a mission, man. You're we are going to change this narrative and we are going to change the way we train folks. No doubt. Within, within that, if people want to support your work, if they want to learn more about everything you guys are doing, maybe they're an aspiring uh, practitioner in the neurofield. Maybe they know somebody who is in a wheelchair or had a catastrophic accident and they've lost hope. Anything. Maybe they just want to come visit and say, thanks for what you're doing. And I'll, what is the best way to reach you? How do they learn more? How do they support everything you and Ryan are doing? Sure. Um, well, React is our nonprofit. And then Basic Methods is our more personal, our family voice, our coaching. Um, so you can visit uh, neuroreaction.org or basicmethods.com. They are one and of the same, same mission, same vision. One's just a nonprofit arm and the other is like more of our personal voice and experiences. So, and then basic is, is very confusing how it's spelled. It's B-A-C-H-I-K. Yeah, hopefully it won't be too confusing because your name will be front and center on the podcast episode. Perfect. So if you guys, <laughs> when, when in doubt, guys, look at your screen and it'll show you exactly how to spell basic. Well, Kendall, I, I appreciate you deeply. Um, 100%. I think these things are critical. And guys, make sure you support their work. And most importantly, make sure you guys download the podcast reflection episodes. There's going to be some questions on there that ask you guys maybe things that you take for granted or maybe things that you don't think you take for granted. But, you know, if you reevaluate them a little bit differently, you could see how your approach could change. And more importantly, how do you communicate and how do you want to be communicated with during times of chaos, during times of uncertainty, during times of doubt? You'll learn a lot about yourself by doing these reflection sheets. Thank you to Allie Kirshner for what she does. Thank you to Kendall Basic for coming on. And thank you guys for listening. Until next time, it's the Art of Coaching Podcast. Brett Bartholomew, Kendall Basic, signing off.